Amen. Great to see you. Hey, get your Bibles out and let's uh, jump into God's Word. Uh, you take your Bible, open it up to the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to start there uh, for our spiritual uh, food uh, today. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're wrapping up our series on grace today. And this has been a great series of just learning and thinking about God's grace. But uh, something happened to me this week that kind of made me uh, think about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, some of y'all know that uh, about a year ago, Liz and I got a new puppy, little guy, but now he can put his paws on my shoulders. He's really grown up and he really loves to run. All right. He's, he's got a third and fourth gear and he really loves to run. And uh, I took him running around town with me one day. By the way, nobody's got it better than a dog of an empty nester. I'm just saying that they got, they're banking. They got it so good. And uh, so he was running and normally we'll, uh, we'll pull in the driveway and I'll kind of let him out and he'll just kind of walk with me into the house. But this particular day, he had something else in mind. So I let him out and he took off running. I mean, just full on, you know, just full gallop, third, fourth gear, you know, uh, the ears are flapping, the mouth is going. I mean, he's just loving, woo, he's going. And, and he turned and he started headed toward Glade Road. Sifflets, and he gets on Glade Road and he's running as fast as he can and cars are swerving and people are slamming on their brakes. I'm like, this is awful, right? This is bad. And as, as he's coming out of the neighborhood, Terry, who lives in our neighborhood, goes to our church, he sees him go by and then he sees me running. And so he, he's out there with me. We're trying to corral this dog and I finally get my car and I chase him down and literally tackle him in the street and get him in the car. And by this time, I'm, uh, could you say a little perturbed, maybe <laughs> slightly, a little upset like I'm gonna kill you if you don't die I'm gonna kill you myself and uh, so I get him home and I pull in the driveway get him in the house and I'm just so frustrated and Terry pulls up in my driveway and so I get out to talk to him and and he's just kind of smiling he said you know pastor I know that it, I know it's it's really frustrating when these animals don't do what they're supposed to do and he said but he said uh, at my church we've been hearing about grace <laughs> and he said it might be good for you to listen to one of those sermons <laughs> I said, yeah, that's right. You know, it's one thing to talk about grace, but to extend grace to others, that's, that's a whole different ball game. And yet that's what we're talking about today. What does it mean to extend grace to others? And that's why I want to take you to this rather obscure passage in the Old Testament, because it's a beautiful picture of God's grace being extended to another person. So I want you to look at it with me, 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. Uh, this is the word of God. And David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God uh, to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. Uh, he is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And he, the king, uh, Ziba said, he is in the house of Machir, the son of uh, Amiel at Lodabar. Now stop right there. Uh, the, this scene picks up with King David is the king of Israel. And uh, he is really at the height of his career, maybe, as a king. 
If you look back at chapter 8, the previous chapter, you see David is a conquering king. David is pushing back the borders. He's defeating his enemies. He's winning his battles. In fact, all of chapter 8 is David fought this guy and one, and this guy and one, and this guy and one, and this guy and one. And so really he's reached the height of Israel both politically, militarily, economically, geographically. He's standing on top, the zenith of his uh, career really. And uh, now you get to chapter 9, and David wants to extend grace to somebody of the house of Saul. In verse 1, he asks a question. Is there someone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? There are two people in that verse that are important for you to understand who they are. Saul was the first king of Israel. And he was a great leader, but he imploded as a leader because his heart was not fully devoted to God. And, and Saul died on Mount Gilboa at the hands of his enemies, the Philistines. So Saul is dead. David is now king. But Jonathan is also mentioned there. Jonathan was a son of King Saul. He was the, the, the bloodline of royalty. He was the heir to the throne. Jonathan should have been the next king. But yet Jonathan and David were dear friends. They were very, very close, as close as brothers and God revealed to Jonathan that, Jonathan, you're not going to be the king. David's the king. David's the anointed one. And Jonathan acknowledged this. And so there was a moment in time when David and Jonathan had this discussion. And Jonathan said, listen, when you come into your power, when you come and you defeat all your enemies, please show loving kindness to my family. Show loving kindness. I'm sure David's like, sure, man, absolutely. Man, we're brothers. Absolutely, I'm going to show loving kindness. The Hebrew word is chesed. It means faithfulness, loving kindness, loyal kindness, and goodness. He said, show that to my family. Not long after that conversation, Jonathan died as well. And so here is David now. He's, he's conquered all of his enemies. He's pushed back the borders. He's now in a place of power, and he remembers now this commitment he made to Jonathan, his friend. And so he calls in Ziba, this servant, he says, is there anybody left of the house of Saul or the son of David or of Jonathan? Is there anybody left in that line that's alive that I can show, same word, chesed, loving kindness, faithfulness, loyal love to? And Ziba said, yeah, as a matter of fact, there's, a, there's one son of Jonathan left, uh, his name is Mephibosheth. He lives in this really podunk town in the middle of nowhere, and he's crippled in both feet. It says that a couple of times in the passage. And David's like, perfect, bring him in. Bring him in. I want, I want to talk to him. And so uh, they bring uh, Mephibosheth in to see uh, David. Now look at verse 5. The king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness, chesed, faithful, loyal love, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Ziba Saul's servant and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my 
table. Look down at verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. You see what David's doing here? David is showing grace to Mephibosheth. He's showing kindness, chesed, faithful love. Now listen, this was really something that kings would not do. King would never do what David did. What he did was so counterculture. We don't get that really because we're kind of in our culture. But back then, that was totally counterculture. No advisor would ever advise David to do this. Why? For two reasons. One reason is that Mephibosheth had absolutely nothing to do to help David. All right? He had nothing to offer David. Normally, kings would, would pour out blessing and, and favor and give land to people that could help them in return or create alliances that would benefit them personally or politically. But you don't understand, man, Mephibosheth had nothing to offer David. He lived in Lodabar, which means desolate place. It really lowered the bar, so to speak, of the standard of living, all right? It was a no-name place, and he lived in ultimate poverty, and he was crippled about feet. That means he couldn't work. He couldn't earn a living. All he could do was beg. He had nothing to bring to the table for David, and yet David chose to show kindness to him. Now he did not have anything to bring to the table, but secondly, he was technically an enemy of David because you understand Mephibosheth was a literal bloodline to the throne. He was an heir to the throne. And most kings in secular cultures would come in and wipe everyone out that could challenge their leadership. Everyone out that could rise up some kind of dynastic challenge to their authority. And so uh, normally he would be killed. But instead of being killed, he's promoted. Instead of being murdered, he's elevated. He's pouring out favor and grace and mercy, unwarranted, uh, undeserved, unmerited, unable to pay back. He's just pouring out grace. He's extending grace to Mephibosheth. I love this story because it's just such a beautiful picture. He said, I'm going to restore all that you've lost. I'm going to give it back to you. And you say, well, Craig, that's, that's a great story. That's a heartwarming story of a guy that got a lot of grace. But, you know, what does that have to do with us? And what does that have to do with, with what we're learning? You know, we've been studying about grace. The grace is, is about how God treats us when we come to Christ. That we're saved by grace. That at one point, God, if you're a believer, at one point, God, open up your eyes to the gospel that he drew you by his Holy Spirit, that he covered your sin, that he drew you into his family, he made you one of his own. He saved you by grace. But grace doesn't just stop at salvation, it continues. And grace sustains us every single day. Every, every, every struggle you endure, it's because you've endured by God's grace, that he sustains you and helps you in your doubts and your struggles and your troubles and your hardships and trials. He sustains you daily by his grace. And not only that, but any good thing that comes in your life comes by virtue of God's grace. Any, any love that you experience, any way that you're able to take care of your family financially, any good thing, any friendship, any meal that you eat, all of that, anything good that comes in your life is because God is pouring out grace upon grace upon grace in your life. And ultimately, God is going to perfect that ultimately in heaven. He's going to take you to heaven. And even there, you're going to be called the grace ones in heaven. And you're going to be seen as a trophy of God's grace for all eternity. It's all from start to finish about grace. It's never about how good you are or how hard you try or how moral or religious you are. It's from start to finish, all God's grace. From start to finish, 
all God's grace. And so we love to talk about grace and sing about grace and celebrate grace and memorize verses about grace. But here's the deal, here's the problem. We love to experience God's grace, but we don't always extend God's grace to other people. We love, we love to talk about God forgive me and God hear me and God love me and God accept me and God, for, uh, God use me, but we're unwilling to be gracious to others, especially those that annoy us, especially those that disappoint us, and especially those that have hurt us. We're not willing. Then we want judgment. Then we want justice. Then we want payback. Then we want retribution. But maybe you have been given grace so that you can share grace with others. Maybe you have been given grace so you can be a grace giver. And I think that's what God wants us to learn from this whole series about grace. It's one thing to receive it. It's another thing to extend it. One thing to experience it for ourselves, but another thing to extend it out to others. And that can be a very hard thing to do. Brian Jennings and Tim Williams were best buddies. They uh, went to high school together, even though Brian, Brian's in the dark shirt. They, uh, they were, went to high school together, even though Brian was a couple years older than Tim. Uh, they went to church together. They both went to Howard Payne together. Both felt the call of God on their life uh, to ministry together. Both served in churches and student ministry together. Uh, both of them were best men at their, each other's weddings. They were very, very close. And so you can imagine the shock that Tim felt when he got the news that Brian had been killed tragically, hit by a teenage drunk driver. And his world was shattered. He was completely devastated, as was many others in, in the community around Burleson. He was hit by a, a young man named Ethan Couch who was the teen that later was tried for these, these uh, crimes. And uh, the defense claimed that he, had, he suffered from affluenza. He, he made so much money, his parents were so affluent that he didn't know right from wrong. Ethan never really expressed much remorse or accepted responsibility really for what happened, which made it more egregious when he only received 10 years probation. Was it too long after receiving probation that there was a video that went viral of Ethan Couch in a drunken party, still back to the same things that he used to do? Well, he violated his probation when the authorities went to take him. Uh, he fled with his mother to Mexico and they were on the run as fugitives, uh, international fugitives. This was all over the news, not only in Texas, but all across the United States. Was later apprehended in Mexico and uh, brought back, extradited back to the United States, back here to Fort Worth. And it was then that Tim Williams began to feel God leading him to reach out to Ethan. In fact, he went to the, uh, uh, the Tarrant County Sheriff and asked him if he could meet with Ethan. And the sheriff said, why would you want to do that? Uh, later on, they, they made arrangements. Their first meeting was, was kind of awkward. They had to speak through video monitors because Ethan Couch was in solitary confinement and the video kind of shot through the hole where they brought the food to him so he could only see maybe half of his face. It was kind of an awkward conversation, didn't last very long. But Tim began to go back every single week to meet with Ethan. 
when nobody wanted to have anything to do with him and nobody wanted to talk to him because of what he had done, Tim kept going back and they had conversations. Later on, they were able to talk through a glass wall. And to start off talking about, you know, accepting responsibility for what he did and how his choices and it impacted and affected so many people in hurtful ways and what happened to him, Tim, personally and the loss of his best friend. He said not, nothing really seemed to get through, but he said somewhere around October, as they went week after week, God began to work on Ethan Couch's heart. And he began to accept responsibility for what he had done and to realize the depth of the pain he had caused and his need for forgiveness and his need for grace. Ethan Couch will be released from uh, prison the week after Easter. I don't know what's going on in his life personally or what, you know, if he has found forgiveness from the Lord. I really don't know that. But what struck me about this story was Tim's extending grace to one that most people would agree didn't deserve it. That he kept going back and kept talking to him and kept talking about forgiveness and grace to him when no one else would. You see, this is what sets us apart as believers. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. You see, when you're, when you're born again into God's family and you're his child, you act differently than the world. When the world says, let them have it, and they deserve that, and it's payback time. When the world says that, the child of God says, no, I'm going to extend grace. I'm going to extend chesed, loving kindness faithful love. That's what a child of God does. We extend grace. So let me ask you something. Who is the person in your life that you need to extend grace to? Or maybe another way to ask it is, who is it in your life you're withholding grace from? You said, Craig, I don't really know where I would start to extend grace to this person in my life. Well, let me just give you this morning just a couple of just, these are very simple, practical things to do, but ways that we can extend grace to a person. Okay, just a couple of things, jot these down. First thing is just this, reach out. Just reach out. That's what David did to Mephibosheth. He just, he, he asked questions, he sought after him, he, he took the initiative, he said, is there anybody? And they said, yeah, Mephibosheth is out in this place. We'll bring him in and he initiated the conversation and he reached out and he, he pursued him. Why? Because he wanted a relationship with him. Uh, think about what Tim did. He, he reached out to Ethan Couch and he pursued him when he wasn't pursuing him. Listen, that's what grace does. Grace uh, takes the initiative. Grace pursues. Grace reaches out. Uh, grace extends. Grace initiates. You know, it's, it, it's grace. It's a gracious thing when uh, a kid, a student in, in school reaches out to that kid that sits in the lunchroom all by themselves. And nobody's around them, and they reach out to them, and they sit with them or say, hey, won't you come sit with us? That's a gracious thing to do. It's a gracious thing to do to reach out to that person in your office that annoys you, the one that you avoid, you know, the one that you pretend you're on your phone when you're really not on your phone so you don't have to talk to them. That person, it's a gracious thing to reach out and have a conversation with them. It's a gracious thing to invite that neighbor uh, to church with you or to invite them into your home or to offer to help them out. In, in their yard work. It's a gracious thing to reach out. 
And listen, you, you, you can never extend grace until you first reach out in some simple way to pursue them. Grace reaches out. Second thing you can do very, just very simply is overlook an offense. David overlooked the offense of Mephibosheth. He overlooked the fact that Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth was uh, uh, an heir to the throne and could hurt him and could use that against him. He overlooked the fact that Mephibosheth was crippled and, and, and was poor and destitute, and that certainly wasn't a popular thing for a king to have someone of that low caliber at his table, and yet he didn't matter. Because for King David, it was basically, hey, Mephibosheth, you matter to Jonathan, so you matter to me. See, you, you, I care about you because you, I care about Jonathan. Listen, grace not only reaches out, but real grace begins to overlook an offense. Say, look, I'm not going to keep living in the past. I'm not going to keep replaying what you did to me or how you disappointed me. I love what Proverbs 19.11 says, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. You'll never get to grace playing old tapes. You never get to grace going, well, yeah, but 20 years ago, this is what she did, or, or 15 years ago, he did that to me on this business deal. You'll never get to grace that way. You only get to grace by overlooking, putting the past in the past and moving forward. Listen, we have so many, we live in a culture that says, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not, you're not sexy enough, you're not successful enough, you're not, not you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not. And yet God says, listen, you matter to me. And listen, if that person matters to God, then they should matter to us. And if God has overlooked our offenses, surely we can overlook theirs. Grace, extending grace means reaching out. It means overlooking an offense. And it also means this. It means showing kindness. Showing kindness to those, especially those that don't deserve it. David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. He said, you know what, all the land that belonged to your grandfather, I'm gonna give it back to you. I mean, this guy was a king, that had a lot of land. This, this, this man went from poverty to wealth, like that. And he said, and, and the royalty, I'm gonna bring you in, I'm gonna treat you like one of my own sons, I'm gonna restore royalty back to you, I'm gonna restore uh, prosperity back to you, I'm just gonna bless you over the top. I'm gonna bless you pouring over. I think about how Tim reached out to Ethan Couch and blessed him with his words, not beating him down, but building him up. This is what we do as Christians. Colossians chapter three, verse 12 says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience. Do you do that? I mean, do you get up in the morning and you clothe yourself? You get dressed in the morning, I'm gonna put on kindness. I'm gonna put on compassion. I'm gonna put on gentleness. Do you live that way as a child of God? Let me, let me, let's just think about this for a minute. Let's just focus on your home. Are you kind at home? All right? Sometimes we're kinder to perfect strangers than we are the people that live in our own house. So are you kind to the people in your home? Is your tone uh, uh, gentle? Is your, are your words encouraging? Or is it like, hey, move it. You know, hey, beat it. Hey, you make a better door than a window. You know, that, those kinds of things. Do you do that kind of thing? Or are you gentle and patient and kind with the people at home? Now let's talk about work. Are you known for your kindness at work? 
Are you known for your compassion uh, at school or at the office? Are you known for these things? I love, uh, I love what Proverbs 16, 4 says. Kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. It's like, hey, like honey is to uh, bread, what like salt is to a bland meal. That's what kindness is like to your conversation. It just makes it received better. When you're kind to people, when you're gracious to people, when you treat them with honor and respect, and not knocking them down or talking down or humiliating. That is what sets the child of God apart. So let me ask you something. When people see how you treat others, would they say that person is definitely a Christian? Because look at how she speaks to them. Look at how he talks to them. That's grace. That's extending grace. You know, this is... This is Holy Week. And I've been thinking about this all week. This is Holy Week. We think about what Jesus did this week. Today, we celebrate Palm Sunday when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey at the fanfare of all the cheering crowds, throwing uh, palm branches in front of him, crying out that he's the king, but Jesus knew what was coming. By Thursday evening, he would be washing his disciples' feet and breaking bread and pouring the wine. By early Friday morning in the middle of the night, who would be arrested, tried, beaten, interrogated, drugged before Pilate. By nine o'clock in the morning, he would have been scourged and beaten and nailed to a cross. Six hours later, he would die at 3 p.m. They would take his body down quickly before nightfall and put it in a borrowed tomb. Saturday, the earth stood still. And Sunday morning, he rose again on that Easter Sunday morning, rising again in power, and we celebrate on Easter like we will next week. But why did he do this? Why did Jesus go through all this? The reason why is he was extending grace to us. See, in so many ways, we are like Mephibosheth, all right? We didn't have anything to offer Christ. He didn't save us because we were smart. He didn't save us because we had anything to offer him. He didn't save us because of our goodness or our morality or our religion. We had nothing to offer him. In fact, the Bible says we were enemies of God, rebels. We broke his laws and broke his heart. We were wicked to the core and wayward in our hearts. We deserve judgment, the Bible says. And yet, because of even that, God gave his love and his grace to us. In fact, uh, the Bible says, I love this, in Romans chapter 5, he says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came just the right time and died for sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love, his chesed, his unfailing, faithful, loyal love. He showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You see what Jesus did for us? That on that cross, what Jesus did was he, he pursued us. 
He initiated. He came to us when we could not come to him. He solved our problem when we could not reach out to him. We were imprisoned in our sin, guilty for what we have done, and he came to us. And he went to a cross. And on that cross, he put all of our sin on him, all of our failures on him, all of our wickedness on him. That he overlooked an offense. The Bible says he's able to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. Why? Because he nailed it to the cross. All of our sin was put on Christ and he died in our place on the cross. That's what he's doing there on that cross. He's dying for you. That's why he's suffering as he is. He's suffering for you. That's why he's stretched out between heaven and earth. He's paying the price for you. And the Bible says that he showed his kindness to us. When we were wayward and wicked, that Jesus showed kindness, that he washed away our sin by faith, that he adopted us into his family, that he made us new, that he changed us to the core. He gave us grace. And listen, if we have been given grace, then we of all people should be grace givers. If we have experienced grace, then we of all people should extend that grace to those who hurt us and those who annoy us and those who disappoint us. We all need grace. 